Season two of Have You Got Five Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store. I have literally never been bored. I've never sat and clock watched a single day in 18 years and that's really the only decent explanation I have of, of why I've stayed here for so long. I'm Rebecca Roberts. Hi, I'm Harriet Small. Welcome to Have You Got Five Minutes, the PR, comms and marketing podcast answering things you'd normally have asked about at an event or while making a brew in the office. Hi everyone, it's Harriet here. As we've mentioned before, this is part of our season finale week. This episode we recorded with Polly Chalk, who also happens to be my boss's boss, is the Director of Communications, Engagement and Culture at the London Borough of Hackney. Hope you enjoy this episode and it is slightly longer than five minutes. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you. we're joined by Polly Chalk. Polly is the Strategic Director for Engagement, Culture and Organisational Development at Hackney Council. Yes, she is my boss's boss. Polly describes herself as a minimalist at heart, joining Hackney in 2003 as a communications officer and working her way all the way up to communications director before taking on her new role. She has been on a journey at the London Council, being a key part of the team that transformed Hackney's reputation as a borough and as an organisation. She leads Hackney's pioneering engagement approach to communication and has built an award-winning service. As a former chair of the CIPR Local Public Services Group and through her peer support with the LGA, she's played a national role in local government and in the wider PR industry. Welcome to the podcast, Polly. Hi. So your career is a little bit unconventional in the way that you've stayed at one organization for quite a long time and worked your way through whereas most people tend to go to other places and then go up the ladder what is it about Hackney that made you stick around well apart from the fact that it's only a 15 minute walk from my house which is quite hard to give up especially in pre-covid days I had no intention of staying here very long when I got here Um, I was still at that stage of my career where you kind of stay places for two years and then you move on and I was also still at that stage of my career where you tend to like in two years time look for the next job because you just want to earn a little bit more money and so when I came to Hackney it was still in a really really terrible state the council because it had had a complete sort of financial and political collapse in the late 90s early 2000s and I came in really at the beginning of the process of really sorting out the council and trying and you know making it into the excellent authority it is today and I think so 18 years later and I'm still here and that wasn't the plan but I've just never got bored and all I ever, ever wanted out of work was to not be bored. You know, when I thought as a teenager and as a young adult about like what you know, what sort of career I wanted, I just wanted to be constantly interested and engaged in what I did. And so Haney's always given me that in spades. And it's just, it's the most interesting and engaging place. We've always had these big challenges. You know, the first big challenge, sort out the council because it's in a real state. And then when we'd sorted out the council in terms of actually sorting out the services so they work properly, it was all about changing the reputation of the council. So really great people wanted to come and work for us. And then when we'd done that, it was about changing the reputation of the borough because Hackney itself had a terrible reputation. And then we had the 2012 Games on the horizon. And then we got past 2012 and we had all the problems around gentrification and, and austerity and, you know, all of those. So it's, it's constantly 
been this evolving picture. We've moved from big challenge to big challenge. And some of it has been amazing, like the 2012 games. And some of it's been really difficult, like the riots and like austerity and, you know, the COVID work and everything. But I have literally never been bored. I've never sat clock watched a single day in 18 years. And that's really the only decent explanation I have of, of why I've stayed here for so long. And because Hackney's kept giving me new opportunity as well. You know, I've always got new jobs and promotions and been able to expand my skills. And, you know, in some ways, I've never been able to think of a good reason for leaving. Public sector comms, it's hard and it's exciting, but there's also a lot of complexity to the role, whether that's the sheer amount of plates that you have to spin or the amount of services that we have to look after. And then you layer on that austerity, which you've already mentioned. How do you keep yourself energised, but also your team, especially thinking about post-COVID? I think the thing about public sector comms is you have to be motivated for it. You know, those of us who do best in this sort of environment are people who have a real public service ethos. You know, I've never wanted to work in the private sector. I mean, I had a brief job working for BT after I graduated and there was just nothing in it to interest me. And I've never wanted to work in the private sector because somebody else's bottom line doesn't interest me. I wanted to work in the public sector because I want to make, and this sounds really cheesy and like a Miss World candidate, but the idea that you can make a difference, the idea that you can actually make a place better and make life better for the people who live there is so motivating and it's really energising in itself. But sometimes we're pulled in so many different directions. There are so many challenges. And then we, you know, we are in a situation now after nearly 18 months of COVID where everybody's feeling really burned out and it can be really hard to keep those energy levels up. But I think the fact that we're supporting people as well who are doing such important work, like the work, you know, you do Harriet yourself and children's social care and so on. The, the work that our colleagues in other parts of the organisation are doing is literally life-saving. And it's much, much harder than the work we do. Much harder. The, the level of risk our social care colleagues carry in terms of the decisions they have to make about people's lives, some of the kind of really, really challenging people and circumstances they have to work with is, you know, it's, it's hugely inspiring really to see how much they can carry, you know, our homelessness team, homelessness and housing needs, the amount of like sheer human misery they have to process in their day-to-day work, the most desperate of circumstances that people are in. We don't have to do that in comms. So yes, the job is tough and yes, we get pulled everywhere and yes, we've had to do 12-hour days during the pandemic and all of that stuff. But I always look at the colleagues that we're serving and supporting and think, well, what they're doing is much harder, quite frankly. And so there's that. In terms of keeping the team energised, Hackney's got a great sense of team and people often who come to work here have come to work in the past and said it's like a family. And there is a sense of that in our service. It's been hard to keep that going particularly for people who've joined the organisation during the pandemic period, because they've never had the experience of sitting in the room next door to the one I'm in now with 45 people in the room, eating cake, having a laugh, sharing the stories of the kind of difficult things we have to do and keeping each other's morale up. That's been, you know, we miss that hugely. And every time I come into the office and there's more than sort of two people there, it just fills my heart with joy. It really does. And it's particularly hard as you move further up in the organisation because, you lose that connection you know when you've only got I don't know seven or eight staff and you can know them all really well and feel quite close to all of them and then suddenly you're responsible for like 200 people and some of them you don't even know their names and and that's much much harder to kind of to be the kind of leader you want to be and I think I'm really struggling with that at the moment because I've taken on other services like the library service and so on so there's all these staff working around the borough who I don't know at all and I can't be the kind of leader for them that I have been for my comms team because I just don't have the opportunity to spend time with them in the same way. But I suppose it's about supporting my management team so that they can go out and do that work with the people that directly report to them. But there's no doubt about it. This year has been really hard 
it's not going to get any easier for a, a time to come. And everybody is running out of steam, quite frankly. So, um, And working in government comms, you've got that layer of organisational leadership and then political leadership. How do you get the balance right? Um, there's a really good essay, actually, about that in local government, and it's called Dancing on Ice. And it's that idea of you've got of having a dual leadership in the organisation where you do have, you know, in our case, you're a directly elected mayor and your chief executive, and they're effectively your two main clients. And actually what the political leadership want and what the managerial leadership think is a good idea aren't always the same. But for me, working with elected members is something I've done my whole career. So my first proper job was working in Parliament as a caseworker for an MP. Well, first of all, I worked in his constituency, and then I moved it to Westminster and worked as um, his parliamentary assistant. And I did that for a couple of years and then came into local government working in a role directly serving members as head of the Labour Group office in Islington. And I, I've always worked with elected members. And there's something about the legitimacy they have, having been elected by the people that they serve, and the idea that you know they're elected on a manifesto and in a council, it's our job to deliver that manifesto. as a direct democratic contract at the heart of what we do. And yes, you don't get that in other parts of the public sector. You don't get that in the NHS. You don't, you know, you don't get that working for the police or whatever. Um, you don't even really get it in the civil service because you're so far removed from the people that you that you're making decisions that they affect. Whereas when you do local government, that democratic contract is in everything you do. And so that's one reason I love local government so much, and one thing reasons I think it's really special. And working with members is a skill because the thing is, is people who've been elected are very different from people who've been appointed. They have very different sets of skills. They have very different set of accountabilities and a very different set of expectations. And to be a senior officer in local government, you have to be able to manage the political interface. You have to be able to manage the two bosses thing. Um, And I've been really lucky in Hackney because the relationships, apart from, you know, a brief period of time, a long time ago, the relationships between the political and managerial side of the leadership have always been strong. So whilst there are differences, you can work through them. And I've also been lucky in that we've had a lot of political stability here. So when you work for councils where it might say, for example, they've got annual elections in a lot of places and there are some councils, particularly cities, that flip between Labour and Lib Dem or Tory and Labour every year. So you're constantly moving between serving different masters. And and those situations, the, the continuity and stability of the managerial leadership becomes even more important because you're the ones who are there all the time. Whereas in Hackney, because we do have really quite stable politics, we haven't had that's 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 a set of skills we haven't really had to develop so we often hear people talk about the fact that communications need to represent the people they're creating comms for and every year we go to lg comms and we have this same conversation about diversity and inclusion and it remains a statement but i think one of the unique things and i think the biggest differences with hackney is it's actually a reality within the team and how have you sort of made sure that diversity inclusion and belonging is at the forefront not just of your recruitment. I think it's really important that as public servants we reflect the communities we serve and I think to be effective communicators you need to have a real diversity of perspective around the table. And so that's not just about the kind it's not just about having ethnic diversity in your team or a good gender balance or any of those although those things are really important what's also really important is having people who think differently and who come from different kinds of backgrounds and who are willing to challenge the kind of orthodoxy or group think that can develop in any kind of service and people who could bring really fresh lived experience to the table and I think PR and comms people can be a particular type 
well, actually, there's a variety. There is a variety of, of comms types, which I'm sure we could spend hours on. That. With all of the podcasts, <laughs> but, um, there's a whole different podcast, yeah. But actually, um, I think that so I've been, and I've been aware for a long time, sort of uncomfortably aware of, for example, the lack of ethnic diversity in communications as a discipline, which is why I got involved with the Taylor Bennett Foundation. You know, because they're they're a great organisation. But I think I've come to realise more recently that actually what I thought were essential requirements in communications people, like, for example, I always used to say you have to have fantastic writing skills and you have to have fantastic political awareness. And I have come to realise that actually fantastic writing skills and fantastic political awareness quite often come from a position of privilege and that actually we don't need people to be the finished article all the time. You need some people to be the finished article because you can't have a whole team that's like in development. But you can you can create space for people who've got talent and interesting perspectives and outlooks who don't necessarily come to the table. I've never been bothered about what degrees people had or what university they went to or how much experience they've got. But it's always been about as long as you've got those two things, I don't care. And actually, I've come to the conclusion that as long as you've got the potential to have those two things and you want to have them, then actually you can have a different starting point. And I think that's one of the things the last couple of years has really taught me. Because in, t- in terms of being inclusive in recruitment, it's all about not putting false barriers up. You know, the simple stuff is don't put must have five years experience, you know, all of that, kind of, you know, must be educated degree standard for a job that really doesn't require it. You know, those, that's the really simple stuff. But actually thinking about the skills you ask for as well, thinking really critically and thinking, well, okay, those skills are really important, but we can develop them in people. Sometimes it's more important to look for different things like being able to bring a diversity perspective to the table, like having different ideas, you know, it's more important than asking people to come in with those common skills absolutely honed. And so I think I've learned a lot about that. And I think that's really the only way you can shift the diversity issue in communications as a profession is by being much more open-minded about the stage at which you're prepared to take people in, essentially. And that's really difficult because the busier we get, the more high risk it becomes to take people who aren't the finished article and you know and the more the more kind of stressful the circumstances that we're working under are but actually the COVID pandemic has opened up opportunities for people in our team we've had a fantastic redeployment effort across the council so you know some of my team they're literally their work stopped the day that Boris Johnson announced lockdown because their jobs were event planning wedding receptions parties location filming all of those things within days they were running PPE distribution across the borough, across North London, doing these other things. But actually some people in the organisation have learned so much from their redeployment roles that their whole career paths have changed as a result of it. And I really want us to keep that in the system somehow after COVID so that you can have a, oh, I'd love to go and work in commerce for three months thing and have someone from another part of the organisation and really develop them into the profession from a different from professional perspective. So that's a really rambly answer to your question. But, you know, I think, I think there is... So much more we can do to be inclusive employers, to build really diverse teams. And I think that, you know, the experience for the last 18 months have, have taught us absolutely tons. Um, and let's talk about the pandemic from a local response perspective. What was Hackney's role in the Keep London Safe campaign? Keep, so Keep London Safe came out of very early conversations last year about test and trace. So the London chief executives were worried that the test and trace system wouldn't land well in London because London has particular challenges. It's high levels of deprivation, population density, digital poverty, diversity, all of those things 
that were going to potentially make the test and trace system difficult to operate. So myself and, well, James Odling-Smee, who's the Director of Comms at London Councils, now London Councils is the body that kind of looks after all the London local authorities. He's the Director of Comms there, and he said to me, would you do some work on this? And, and we started to think about potentially building a pan-London test and trace campaign that would support and augment the national government effort, but that would be really targeted at Londoners. So we started looking at the insight that some of the boroughs were already doing about attitudes to test and trace amongst different groups, about whether people trusted it, about whether they would engage with it. And we we, we were able to pull together insight from lots of different boroughs, Newham, Kensington and Chelsea and so on, but also run focus groups of our own and really start to build a picture. So we, we got a little bit of money from London councils just to start some work on test and trace. And getting the 32 London boroughs plus the city engaged you know, it's a challenge. So the thing about London boroughs that lots of people outside London don't realise is they're absolutely massive, even though they're geographically really small. So Hackney's only 6.8 square miles, but has a population bigger than Southampton or Cardiff or somewhere like that, you know. And then there's, and there's 32 of those and they've each got... So it's like, it's, like, it's like getting 32 city councils to work together and they've got different political leadership, they've got different priorities and so on. But actually... There was a really effective like WhatsApp group running of the London Heads and Directors of Commons from the beginning of the pandemic, and there was a real appetite for working together on this. So Keep London Safe was born just out of that test and trace work. And our initial objective was to... The, f- the first data point we were working from was some GLA polling that showed how low awareness was in London at that point of how to get a COVID test. And we're talking like last May, June. So that was our first thing, is we have to raise awareness amongst London's population to how you actually get a test. And it just kind of took off from there because before, you know, everyone loved the brand. They loved the graphics. They loved the fact that you could localise it. So Keep London Safe was the top line of the campaign. But the idea was you could take it down to Keep Hackney Safe, Keep Camden Safe, Keep Barnet Safe, and then sub-neighbourhoods under that. So Keep Stamford Hill Safe or Keep Kentish Town Safe or whatever. And everyone really loved that aspect of it. And so it went from being just a test and trace campaign into suddenly people wanted to use it to promote hand space space, they wanted to use it to promote different aspects of the public health advice. One thing we were quite clear on, though, is we weren't going to use it to promote government guidance every time it changed. So every time it was, oh, now it's the rule of six, and now it's this, and now it's that, and now you can have six people in a pub garden, but not in an attic and all of that. We like, thought, we are not going to do that. We're going to focus on basic infection control, test and trace, and support. So support for people who are self-isolating and all of that. But very quickly, it became clear that London had a vaccination problem. You know, the very first lot of data that came from the GLA in like November last year that showed the ethnic disparity between people who were willing to have the vaccine and people who weren't were like, oh, bloody hell, that's huge. That gap is huge. And so we immediately realised that what London needed as well was KLS to turn into a vaccination campaign. And that's when we started the Community Insight in Hackney. And Florence Sabina, who runs our insight and consultation team, who's brilliant, she started doing local polling focus group work, testing messages, trusted influencers, all of that stuff, built an insight guide that all the other boroughs could use so that we could pull our insight from across London and actually start to pull together some really valuable work, which then turned into the KLS vaccination campaign, which has been huge. And the council started working together on really amazing community events. So during the winter lockdown, we were holding vaccination events online for different groups. So we did a joint one with Enfield and Haringey because Hackney, Enfield and Haringey have big Turkish speaking communities. So we did a big online event for Turkish and Kurdish speaking communities using Turkish and Kurdish speaking medical professionals and 
we got two and a half, it was a Facebook live event, we got two and a half thousand people at it who were from those communities and wanted to find out more about vaccination. And across the first three months of this year, the, the KLS and the London councils ran more than 60 of those events targeted at different communities. So Keep London Safe, and what had started, as I say, just a kind of basic how to get test comms campaign, it turned into this hugely complex kind of engagement and insight-led campaign to really underpin the capital's COVID response. And London's worked together on it like never before. And it's been absolutely superb and a real privilege to be as involved in it as I have been. And we've, you know, early on in it, the London Director of Public Health gave us a real vote of confidence in giving us funding to actually employ a campaign manager. So she is hosted at Camden Council, but works for KLS across the piece. And of course, now we're thinking about, you know, conversation I had today was we know that booster jabs are going to be a thing in September. So what's the KLS response to that going to be? What are we going to do for London on that? So it's not going to stop, but it's, it's brilliant. And when I see the KLS branded vaccination buses and everything like that across the city. It makes me extremely proud. Um, I love that because it's kind of like a collective but hyper localized. You know, you're putting different communities as like the hero of each mm. part of the campaign. Hackney's home to one of the largest Haredi Jewish communities in Europe. Talk to us about what COVID taught you about communicating with this community. Wow. Well, they're the largest in Europe, actually. They're one of the largest in the world. The Haredi Jewish community in Stamford Hill represents about 10% of Hackney's population, but about 25% of our under-19s. Huge community, it's growing very fast, have lots of children. They live a very, very observant religious life and no Haredi household has a television or a radio. So when the you know when Boris made his announcement on the 22nd of March last year, the country was going into lockdown. I mean, Stanford Hill was watching it. So we had a real job on our hands, and we immediately had to start communicating using very you know old-fashioned mechanisms, door-to-door communications, getting letters out through doors in Stanford Hill saying you know the country's now in national lockdown. This is what it means for you. This is what it means for Passover, which is happening in a couple of weeks. You know, very early on in the pandemic, we were really reliant on a rabbi called Avraham Pinter, who had for a very long time served as a bridge between the council and the community and he was he was a really lovely man and he he used to be a councillor years ago a Labour councillor actually and he was um always on the other end of the phone so in the early days of the pandemic I was on the phone to him almost every day and he was saying no 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 you have to rewrite that differently you have to appeal to people's emotions he was saying Passover's about grandchildren tell them if they give up Passover this year then they'll be alive to do it next year you know all of this and I had these these really fantastic conversations with him and he was so supportive and then on the 4th of April he died of Covid really suddenly and I think both we and the community were like, oh my goodness, where do we go from here? Like, you know, we've all relied on him so much to create that bridge between a council and a community that don't always share the same values, actually, because the Hackney Council is very, very liberal and progressive is the word you would use. And the Haredi community is very conservative and has very old fashioned religious values. And how do we bridge that gap without Rabbi Pinter? And so we had to make an active effort sitting around at the table with colleagues in the community and saying okay so now we've got to do this without him how do we build a communications and engagement partnership going forward which we have done and there have been some points at which it's been really active we've been meeting weekly you know especially we've had points where Stanford Hill infection levels have been getting much higher than other parts of the borough and so on and you know we've always been able to now we can just pull them together you know if we, we can get our community partners together and we can okay What's the insight we're getting on vaccinations in the borough? How are we going to respond to that? You know, we've done so much stuff with them. And, you know, I mean, there was a time before the High Holy Days last year when they were expecting lots of visitors from New York and Israel 
to come and visit for the High Holy Days. And this was towards the end of last summer. And one of our community partners just said jokingly, oh, we should put adverts in the newspapers in New York telling them not to come. And I said, actually, that's a really good idea. And we ended up, I got one of my teams to do a load of research on like what the contact details and advertising rates for these publications were in Israel and New York and Antwerp, which is another place the community are living. And we ended up advertising in newspapers in New York saying, you'll be very, very welcome next year, but please don't come this year. We never would have done that, actually, without that insight from the community, without those relationships with the community and almost them giving us the green light to do that. So, yes, the relationship is much deeper and stronger than it was before. It has been an absolute joy and a privilege to work with those partners and to learn so much more about their faith and their community than I would have done. I got to go up there and Rosh Hashanah and have honey cake and it was be shown around all the local shops and stuff, and it was ace. And I think when it comes to us working together on issues in the future, where there have sometimes been points of conflict between the council and the community, I think the partnership we have made will long outlast the pandemic and take us through that. I really do. And in fact, Dan in my team has got so closely involved with the community that um, one of the rabbis is teasing him and saying, we're going to give you a bar mitzvah this summer. Because, um, you know, he seems like a, become like an honorary member. But, you know, it's it, the, the relationships and the kind of just the, the really nice day-to-day working relationships we have with the community now, we just didn't have before. So COVID's done us a big favour there. And I think it will have a, a really good legacy going forwards. So I work in your internal homes team and... One of the things that amazes me about Hackney's internal comms or the organisation is how much there's a lot of respect for internal communications. We have a seat at the table, but we also have a voice at the table. And I'm just curious about that journey and what it's been like. So when when I first became the head of comms in Hackney in 2012, the chief executive wasn't convinced of the strategic value of communications, but he was open-minded to it he just hadn't seen it thus far and he thought it you know he thought it was really something the politicians were more concerned about I kind of went on a bit of a mission to show him what communication could do for him as a leader of the organization and I think the result of that was that he ended up and and you know you'll remember this from when Tim was here he really owned internal comms as the chief executive or in local government parlance the head of the paid service he really took full ownership of internal communications he saw it as so important to him as the chief for his relationship with staff for the way that the organization for, for organizational culture and so on and I think that was really the key to it because I think he never saw it as sticking out the odd staff newsletter and like whatever he you know he loved the big set piece staff engagement events he loved going out and talking to staff he loved going down to the depot and having a bacon sandwich with the bin men and all of that stuff and I think because it was so important to him the rest of the organization kind of got the bug of it a little bit taking him on that journey which wasn't that hard to be honest because like as soon as he kind of clicked with it he absolutely loved it so I think under Tim it was always led from the top and so he always really respected Jenny, who's our internal comms manager, who's Harriet's boss. But even when Jenny was just an internal comms officer and didn't have any team or any budget or any anything, she was still always had a seat at the chief exec's table, always was a trusted source of advice, and he always listened to her. And she was, she was always one of his key people. And so I think that's created a culture in the organisation where it's valued. But that's definitely where it started. So I must definitely give Tim the credit for that. And just finally, what advice do you have for anyone who's thinking about working in local government PR and comms? So what advice would I give to someone wanting to get into local government PR and comms? Well, it's, it's funny because when I've done work, for example, with the Taylor Bennett Foundation graduates and so on, there's never even occurred to them that going to work for the council will be a thing that you that might like be PR. 
you know um i think when people think about public sector comms they might think about health service or they might think about the civil service central government but lots and lots of young people would never really think about it as a career choice my dad was a local government officer so i he was a senior officer at southampton city council so i always knew more about town halls than like your average kid i would say that if you're looking for a career if you've got public service ethos if that is a thing that drives you and gets you out of bed in the morning if you care about communities that you live in and you want to serve your communities and if you want a comms role that is literally never boring then it is totally the place to be you know when you get to work on things as diverse as helping to host the 2012 games to dealing with the fallout from awful child protection case you know there's the highs and the lows but the huge diversity of experience is there i did a uh, talk to the taylor balance summer stars a couple of years ago and i showed them a slide which had on it a picture of baby p and a picture of victoria columbia and a picture of grenfell tower and i was like this is the worst it gets and actually you have to be able to deal with stuff like that if you want to do comms in an organization like this because awful things happen to people and they happen to people on local authorities watch and being a communicator here is part of picking up the pieces after stuff like that so if you don't think you can handle that which lots of people wouldn't want to then probably don't go and work for a council Um, especially a unitary authority which has responsibility for housing child protection all of that kind of stuff but if you think you can handle the tougher side of it and you get really excited by people and communities and and say by public service then there's nothing better that you can do with your skills i don't think it's a great career as well there's always room to grow in an authority and it has like you know we get paid pretty well we have decent pensions you know those are things that are not to be sneezed at but it's not for everyone it absolutely isn't for everyone you know as as harriet said at the beginning i am a a municipalist i'm the sort of person who takes photos of bollards on holiday you know (laughs) Um, I i always take photos of town halls wherever i go you know i notice street furniture i I visit swimming pools. I love this kind of thing. You know, I've got a real Leslie Nope streak in me. But, you know, and I say not everybody's into bollards. <laughs> and there are really boring, nerdy aspects to it. But mostly it's just about people. That's our business is people and people's lives. And we have such huge corporate responsibility for aspects of people's lives. Corporate responsibility for the safety of every child in this borough, you know, for the safety of our 23,000 council tenants. And, and, it's, and it's it's huge responsibility that we carry and we need really talented, brilliant people to help us do it well. A good way into it, really, is, I mean, people come into these sort of roles from all sorts of different backgrounds, some of them from local journalism, and it's always good to have, you know, two or three really good journalists on your POMS team. But people come in from, you know, from charities, from, they come in from, um, you know, from agencies, especially agencies that have had public sector clients, and we, we get a fair few people like that as well. Or we, you know, we're trying to get more people into apprenticeships as well. So one of our brilliant comms officers, Labrea, who's done tons of work on COVID, she came in through the council's apprenticeship scheme, not actually into the comms team initially, but into youth services, but kind of came over to us. Um, so there are tons and tons of different ways into it. But, you know, I can't recommend it highly enough as a sort of a, as a, as a place to take your career. And I can't imagine doing anything. I may not stay at Hackney for the whole rest of my life, but I can't ever imagine leaving local government. I really can't. You've sold it to me, Polly. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. And everything we've mentioned will be in the show notes. We're talking about the questions and issues that matter to you. So DM us on social or get in touch with Harriet at commsovercoffee.com or myself, Rebecca at threadandfable.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please do rate, review, subscribe so others can find us and have five minutes with us. Find us on Twitter at RebeccaRobert7 or at Harriet Smalsey. 
Season two of Have You Got Five Minutes is brought to you in partnership with Nextdoor, the neighbourhood app that's used by one in seven households in the UK. This past 18 months, we've all needed to connect a little closer with the communities around us, and Nextdoor are working to create a kinder place for people to have a neighbourhood that they can rely on. Tap into your neighbourhood at nextdoor.co.uk or download the app from your app store.